Orange Church, how are we doing? That don't get you fired up for worship. I don't know. That's uh, Matthew chapter 18. That's where our church are going to this morning. Matthew chapter 18. I want to take this a minute to thank you guys. I know Pastor Andrew's already done it. Thank you so much for being in church. Thank you for being in church last week and giving for the needs of the church. Uh, it's such a, a, a praise that God blessed our church through his people, by giving to the church. Very thankful for your thankfulness and willingness to give. And also, I'm thankful for everybody who's been involved with uh, Charles Bill in their situation. Thank you guys for being so willing to put yourself to the side and help out with them in their time. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to read the chapter in its entirety. God's word says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They called a child to himself and sat him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you were converted and become like children, you would not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the middle of the sea. Woe to the world because of his stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut him off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled and lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fire of heaven. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save them which were lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain to go and search for the one that is strayed? And it turns out that he finds him. Truly I say to you, he rejoices over more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone straight. So it is not the will of your Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones perish. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault behind him. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a taskmaster. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. Then Peter came to him and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to the king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment to the so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, and released him and forgave him of the devil. And the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what happened, and with deep grieving, he came and reported to their Lord all that happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I have mercy on you? And his Lord removed from anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Heavenly Father will also do the same to you. If each one of you does not forgive his brothers from your heart. This is God's word. Pastor. Rob. 
Justin, Melody, Choir. I'm ready to worship God for His work. Are you? That, as you know, is a, it's a big, it's a weighty, it's a hefty text. There's a lot of verses there, and so when I thought about uh, baby dedication, um, I thought about the, the sermon entitled Shepherding Our Little Ones, and this text really uh, comes to mind. But there's so much here, and it's so vital that we get this right, that we understand this entirety of this chapter in its appropriate biblical context, uh, that as you notice, there's a part one there, which means I'm not going to get through all that needs to be uh, got through to speak proper English uh, in the Matthew chapter 18 this week. We're going to take two weeks to do that. So I already encourage you to right now make plans and say there's nothing stopping me from coming to church next week to hear the rest of God's Word. Now that we've uh, read God's Word, there's something missing. Let's ask the Lord to bless His Word uh, together as we bring it before Him in prayer. Pray with you. Gracious Father, thank you um, that we, Father, who were once separated from Christ, alienated from uh, the commonwealth of Israel, estranged from the covenant of promise, and without hope, because we were without you in this world, that we now have been brought near to you by the precious blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that we gather this morning confident that you receive us, that you accept us, that you love us, confident in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son who has ransomed us. Father, we, your people, are here to receive grace and help, Father. We, we continue to, to struggle and to strive in this this war-torn world that's tainted by sin. Fathers, we come to your word now. Our prayer is simple. We pray that you can cause us to feast. That you pour out your spirit. We may feast upon your word, that we might hear, that we might understand. Would you impress this word upon our hearts in such a way that we are enabled to respond in a way that honors you, that glorifies you, that exalts your son Jesus, causing us to walk in a manner worthy of of the gospel and obedience to the Spirit of Christ in us. We ask this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, Matthew 18. Many of you probably know this. I don't know if you do. About a year and a half ago, there was an article in World Magazine. The leading story was entitled, We Too. Mimicking the play on what you're probably familiar with as the Me Too phenomenon in our culture. The article was in response to the admission by the Roman Catholic Church recently of a really very poor reaction to the abuse of young children, young people by Catholic priests in various places. The We Too story itself is really about how Protestants are not immune. Are we? In fact, there have been several more recent articles released about the sexual abuse that's run rampant amongst prominent churches, Protestant churches as well. There have been our stories and reports. The article, the We Too Movement article, reveals several instances of those called to shepherd God's people who have actually used that opportunity to misuse and abuse God's people. It is no doubt a blight on the reputation of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a blight on the testimony of the church. But unfortunately, in this world that's marred and stained by sin, it is a reality and one that Jesus speaks to directly here in our passage in Matthew chapter 18. Again, it'll take us two weeks to get there, but we will see that the we too, if I can use that phrase, the fact that it happened at all, of course, is, is, is ugly, it's sad, it's horrid, it's tragic anywhere. But in light of what Jesus says here in Matthew 18, it is as atrocious an act as one can possibly found. In fact, if I were to give you a big idea of chapter 18 of Matthew, it would be this. Leaders love Jesus' little ones. That is what 
leaders. That is what shepherds do. Those who are called to lead in and among God's people, they love Jesus' little ones. And so we're going to hear Jesus explain that here in chapter 18, but in order for us to get a real chunk of this passage, we've got to look at the backdrop, the overall context. We can't just jump into any given book and just say, this is what this means, taken out of context from the book itself, from the genre itself, from the thread of biblical theology. Remember, the Bible is just one big story about a gracious God who redeems and saves his people for his glory. And so we've got to see this in its proper context. And, and really, in Matthew chapter 18, and verses 1 through 4, Jesus lays out the entrance of the kingdom of heaven. And he lays it out in three particular ways. First, he lays it out in becoming like children. Turning and becoming like little children. And conversion. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus simply states, you must become like children. That doesn't mean you begin to act immature. He's referring to conversion. Well, we'll see that in verses 3 and 4, particularly in chapter 18. Let's read those verses here uh, together. The Bible says, and, and, and said, Jesus speaking here, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells us very plainly, he tells his disciples in this uh, particular passage that unless a person is converted, unless a person becomes like a child, he or she will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We must become like children. And there's a reason for this, right? That is, each and every one who enters the heaven, who enters the kingdom of heaven, must know that in becoming like children, we're recognizing that we need something we cannot provide for ourselves. In becoming like children, we must acknowledge that you and I, we need something we cannot provide for ourselves. So we must go to Jesus like the child who was called to Jesus without any pretense, any delusion that they are their own master. That they are able to provide for themselves. We go to him like a child who believes that his or her parents are superheroes, right? That they, the parents, will provide all that they need, who is able to do the impossible. See, this mirror very easily in our children. Addie, you know, is four. She turned four a couple weeks ago, and now she's confident that she's a big girl, right? And that works to her advantage in many ways whenever she shows her beautiful little independence that she has. Often she loves saying, the reason I want to do this thing this particular way is because now I'm a big girl. But yet even being four, when she lays her head down at night to sleep in her own bed in the dark by herself, she recognizes that she's not quite the big girl she thought she was, right? Because when, when the fear comes, when she recognizes that she has a need of feeling safe and secure, she calls dad out. And she calls dad out like 15 times, right? Uh, to make sure that dad is, she's recognizing there's a need that she can't provide for herself that she's dependent upon dad for, and that is her security, her safety in the midst of the dark. But friends, that's what Jesus is referring to. We, we must come to our Father through Christ, believing that He is able to do the impossible. That He is able to save sinners from their sins, to do what we cannot. So we must become like children, completely despairing of any hope of being able to save ourselves. And so if a person is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, it will have to be empty-handed. If you and I ever hope to, to reach that beautiful choir that we sing, oh praise unto the Lamb who sits on the throne forever and ever and ever, you and I must get rid of the hope that we are able to save ourselves and we must come into the kingdom of heaven empty-handed. Just like we sang in our beautiful hymn this morning, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I come. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. In other words, and this might sound a little crazy, it certainly did to 
the Pharisees, not only in order to enter the kingdom of heaven must we come become like children, but it's not too much to say that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be a sinner. That's, that's sounded heretical to the Pharisees, right? But this is what Jesus' message was. In order to, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must be a sinner. The church is comprised of sinners. All of this is to say that um, the constituent of the, of the kingdom of heaven are the sick and the broken, not the healthy and whole. The members of the church, they're needed. Of God's church on all levels, if you belong to Christ, you are a needy person, and you acknowledge that. But listen, they're not just needy at the gate, but they're needy as they wait. It's not just like they're sinners only as they enter the gates of heaven, but even after entering the gate, which means coming to Jesus in this figurative language, all of a sudden, it's not like they all of a sudden receive their glorified bodies. Right? It's not sudden, all of a sudden you, you trust in Christ, you rely upon Christ, and now all of a sudden you are immediately perfect and you've received your glorified bodies. If you've received your glorified bodies already, go ahead and raise your hand. Alright, some of you are pretty self-confident, right? <laughs> if, if this is my glorified body, I've got a lot of issues, right? I'm not looking forward to that. But I, I, we haven't. There's no way that we absolutely receive our glorified bodies in this way. The kingdom of heaven belongs to sinners only. In fact, you can almost picture the narrow gate that we're called to enter through is having a big sign above it saying, sinners only. The kingdom of heaven belongs to sinners. Belongs to the poor in spirit who recognize their complete spiritual bankruptcy. The outcast, the destitute, the broken, the hopeless, as, as Jesus told the Pharisees in Luke chapter 5, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came for the sick. He came to call sinners. And Jesus is going to build, this is where we get the backdrop, he is going to build what he calls an ecclesia. Assembly, a group of people, a church. The members that make up this group have something in common that they're sinners. They're comprised of sinners. This is who we are. And that means all of us sitting here, who claim to belong to Jesus Christ, in order to be under his reign, we have to have entered into the kingdom of heaven through faith in him, but it means we're still broken. We're still weak. We're still needy. See, Jesus is not merely offering the entrance requirements here to the kingdom of heaven in verses 3 and 4. Jesus is, is teaching, he's showing his disciples, his apostles, that those who come after him and provide leadership to this body, he's teaching them an invaluable lesson about the members of the church he's going to build. He's teaching them in order to become, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to acknowledge your weakness and helplessness, not your strength and independence. What do you want them to know? In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, friends, you must acknowledge your weakness and helplessness, not your strength and independence. And so I want to just paint a picture for you. If I could, if I could really just think about the, the chunk between Matthew 18 and 20, I want you to consider it like this. If I can attempt to illustrate, or as Jesus does, if I might attempt to author a parable that might illustrate. I want you to imagine that a man shows up in a war-tour land. It's a land that's ravaged, and he claims to be a prince. He claims to tell you that he is going to build a great city in this land that's ravaged by war and despair. And he is a refuge for the king's people. The, the prince claims that this city will be impenetrable. That all who enter it will have all of their debts to the king himself forgiven. That they will have rest from the war, from from, uh, they'll have peace with the king, they will have all of their daily needs met, and all of their wounds over time healed. Well, anyway, you begin to hang out with this prince long enough that you actually begin to believe that he is the prince and that he is going to build 
this city. And so you join the cause. You sign it up. You want to be part of, of what he's doing. And, and construction for the kingdom begins. And then the first thing that's constructed is this large wall with a small, narrow gate. And this large wall is built around the construction site itself where the city is erected. And, and you've been with the prince since the beginning. You're one of the first ones to sign up. And you decide after some time that it's time to ask him a question. So here you are with the prince and you're pondering what, what important role you might play in this future city. Uh, you're contemplating where is your house going to be? And there's this gorgeous site up on the hill. It's right next to the prince's house. And you think, oh, man, right there. That, that would be beautiful. That's where I want to be. And so you start getting pretty pumped and start feeling pretty good about yourself when you think about what maybe your title is going to be, right? what your wage is going to be as you help the prince administer this city. And so you ask the prince, you say, Mr. Prince, who is going to get that really big, beautiful house on the hill right next to yours? Who, who is that one going to belong to? That spot right up there. See, this is what the disciples were asking. Who is going to be the greatest in your kingdom? And you think, why not me, right? What about me? Prince, I've been with you from the beginning. Where's my house going to be? What's my income going to be? What about my title? Can I just have the word high in it somewhere, right? Like high person of the fourth quadrant or whatever, that's too long, never mind. Just high Cody something of somewhere that would be great. And as you're pondering that and meditating on that, the prince cuts you off and says, listen, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But you notice something. You notice that as he says that, he's not even looking at you. He's looking at that narrow gate. And the prince is just staring at that gate. And as you turn to see what he's looking at, you, you notice that that gate is filled with filthy, deformed people, broken people, smelly people. Uh, many are actually just being dragged in through this gate. Some are being literally carried. They're bloody. They're broken. And as you, you look past the gate, you see something else. You see a, a group of very sophisticated and apparently well-educated, smart scholars. They're standing outside the gate, and the prince has made his way down, and they've got a few questions for the prince. They want to know just how wise he is and, and whether his town has been properly constituted. They want to know whether the, the right documents have been turned into city hall, from where the king resides, that they've been stamped in a timely manner, and whether this city construction is even permissible. So these scholars seem completely oblivious to the broken, humble riffraff coming to the town, flowing through the gates. When they do notice those people, they, they sneer, they show contempt, and the best disregard. There's no signs of compassion or pity. So these scholars despise these dirty, foolish, weak people. And then you notice another person, not a scholar, but a rich young man. And he shows up at the gate and his horses it's huge, it's high, it's white. His armor brilliant in the sun and encrusted with, with valuable jewels and diamonds. The man on the high horse, he carries himself with great dignity. It's obvious from looking at him, he's a, he's a man of virtue and strength. He's got several servants around him, attending to him, and you need to wonder if your house is, is going to get moved down the hill a couple of spots. Because this guy maybe looks the part and he would be very valuable to the prince. And so the high horse man, he rides up to the gate, he looks like he's about to enter and stroll right in, but the prince has met him there. And you hear the prince tell him, you hear the prince tell the high horse man, if he wants to enter, he needs to dismount his horse. In fact, he can pass it off to one of the lame walking by so they can use it. He also needs to shed his armor. He can pass that off to someone else who may be out able to use it and enter without it. So the, the, the high horseman, his head drops. And he turns his horse and he rides away from the gate. And as you watch him ride away, you notice that past him, as far as the eye can see, just picture it. As far as I see, you are watching high horseman gallop off in the distance, and what you see is high horseman riding right by 
an endless line of people as far as the eye can see. These dirty, smelling, lame people, blind, deaf, and dumb, streaming all towards the gate. They're coming because they've heard that the prince has come. They've heard the invitation of the city is, is to the sick, to the broken. They've heard that this prince allows even sinners and tax collectors in, and they are flocking towards this gate. They've heard the offer of forgiveness of all their debts, protection from the enemy that has wreaked havoc on their land, and so they are crossing hell and high water, leaving their homes and their families, their jobs, they are leaving everything for this singular hope, the mercy of the prince. So the humble, the broken, the impoverished sinners, tax collectors, they're entering the city, and the prince turns to you and says, you're thinking about your place in the city, and instead, you should be thinking about how you can serve these little ones. That, that really is the entire backdrop of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18 to 20. He is saying that the kingdom is full of needy and broken people. It's the lame, deaf, the blind, and broken that are entering, and they are being glorified as they pass through. Not yet. And so what would it look like to lead a group of people? What would it look like to lead a group like us? And friends, it looks like shepherding and loving our little ones. And so in this context, with this backdrop, Jesus offers four lessons for his followers. And as you notice in your bulletin, we've got one lesson to cover because we're running short of time already. Although my clock says 10, 13, so I'm okay. <laughs> We're going to look at this one and finish the other three next week. Here's the lesson. Number one for today. Little ones are weak, so don't cause them to stumble. Little ones are weak, so don't cause them to stumble. This is one of those verses that we know very well, and that many have offered interpretation for, but this is why we spend so much time in the context, because the context is key. Look at verse 5 and 6 of Matthew chapter 18. See what it says. He says, And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This was one of those um, that I memorized uh, when I was a young kid so I could throw in my brother's face when he sinned against me. Um, that's not really the context of this verse, uh, but it worked at the time being, not just the uh, There is no receiving Christ without receiving those for whom he died. I want you to hear that. Let me read it again. Verse 5 says this, And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So let's just be clear. Whoever doesn't, doesn't. Jesus, in fact, is going to make that really clear in Matthew 25, where he paints this picture of him returning on the last day, seated upon his throne, separating the sheep and the goats, and then he tells the sheep what they've done to him. And, and remember, who they've done it to? His brothers. These little ones that belong to him. And so it's a package deal. You don't have Jesus, can't receive Jesus, can't claim to trust in Jesus, to love Jesus, and then turn away his little ones, despise them, and hate them. You can't. Now, John is clear in his first epistle, you're a liar if you claim to love God and hate your brother. Right? Nothing is further from the truth. And that's what I want you to notice, first of all, that, that receiving is contrasted with stumbling. In this passage, the word here, by the way, to stumble, is, it's an interesting word. Uh, more specifically, the idea is to cause to stumble or to take offense. It's a word that's used all the time in Matthew's gospel, and not for just sin generally, uh, but for failing to believe in Jesus specifically. And this is important. Not, not used to stumble for just sin in general, but it's really used for failing to believe in Jesus specifically, which I believe is the context it should be used in here in Matthew 18. 
Matthew 11, 6, for instance, when John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one or are we going to wait for another God? What's, what's up, Jesus? Are, are, you, are you it? Or should we be looking for another? He goes back and he tells John what I've done. He alludes to Isaiah and then he tells him in verse 6, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Really, blessed is the one who does not stumble because of me. Matthew 13, verse 57, Jesus returns to his hometown Nazareth. And there he teaches in the synagogue. It says in verse 57, and they took offense at him. That is, they stumbled because of him. So, so the two things contrasted is not simply helping or receiving one and then causing one to sin. It's receiving versus causing one to not trust and follow in Christ. That's what it means to cause one to stumble in this context. Is that to cause one of these little ones in some way not to trust and follow Christ. Or to put it this way, helping one to trust and follow Jesus as opposed to causing someone to doubt the faithfulness of Jesus and his ability to save. So now you see why we're preaching this text on this Sunday morning, right? Because you and I, we just made a covenant with the Lord, a promise to the Lord that we were going to help this young, beautiful girl to believe in Christ, to help her follow, to show her the beauty of Christ, as opposed to causing her to doubt the faithfulness of Jesus and his ability to save. That's what's being contrasted here in our text. To receive one of these little ones is not to cause them to stumble. Not to cause them to look someplace else. Not to cause them to doubt Jesus' ability to save completely. And now in, in that context, look at another section of Scripture that we need to see in context in verses 7 through 9. Look what he says in the light of it. says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that, that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. So notice what Jesus is saying here. This is going to sound bad, but let's explain and use the word in the text. Jesus is saying here that temptation to sin is necessary. Now, hold on. I don't believe what Jesus means here is that it's necessary as in the world needs it. But he uses the word, and the NSV translates this word correctly. It's necessary as in it's inevitable. A sin is inevitable for human beings. If you're a human being, you're going to sin. Uh, notice, that's what he says. Remember, the expectation was that when, when the Messiah came to the kingdom, uh, it would be established, the kingdom would be established, and then it would be the end of the evil age. Right? Immediately, it would be the day of the Lord. Those two events would coincide. The initiation of the kingdom and the day of the Lord, where he rides in the earth and, and, and destroys every cause of evil. But Jesus explains that that's not the case. Yes, the kingdom is being established. I'm going to initiate the kingdom, but it will begin as a seed and slowly grow throughout the entire garden, the entire world. But in the meantime, both the weed and the wheat will coexist. They'll bind together until the end. This present evil age is not coming to an end with the first advent of Christ. Lawbreakers and believers... The good seed of Christ and the seed of the serpent, they will bind side by side in the world until Jesus returns. So what's the point? The point in verses 7 through 9 is that temptation to sin is necessary. It's inevitable. The kingdom has come, but, but the causes of sin will remain. Lawbreakers will remain. Therefore, sin is necessary. It's inevitable. Temptation to sin are necessary until the Son of Man returns and the glory of his Father to remove every cause of sin forever. So in the context, this, this group of verses 7 through 9, it's not so much about avoiding sin for your own benefit. Though it's tempting to read it this way, right? Okay, well, I'm, I'm struggling with sin, so it would be better for me to cut off my hand than to continue to sin because it's beneficial to me. We read it as though Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptation to sin. 
for it's necessary for temptations to come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. So cut off your hand, cut off your foot if it causes you to sin. But remember the context. The emphasis is on sinning against these little ones. It's a specific topic under discussion. It starts back in verse 5. It's repeated again in verse 7. So the concern here is how the apostles or the disciples or anyone else, especially those who are given to lead God's people, will sin or lead them to sin, causing them to fall away from Jesus. So the big context of chapters 18 through 20, it's a warning against leading that uses and abuses the sheep of Jesus Christ to the benefit of the shepherd. Hear that. It, it's fleecing Christ's sheep, using them for your own pleasure, then in doing so, tempting them to doubt the goodness of the good shepherd. And the warning is, do not cause these little ones to stumble, but how would you cause these little ones to stumble? By tempting them to believe that Jesus is in cahoots with the devil, for instance. Which we've heard the, the Pharisees say through the Gospel of John. It's by tempting these little ones to believe that Jesus doesn't accept sinners and tax collectors. By telling little ones to stop bothering Jesus or telling those who are crying out for mercy to quiet down. It's by asking Jesus to send away a dirty, despicable, Canaanite woman with a possessed daughter. Get rid of her, Jesus. She's driving us nuts. It's by despising them instead of receiving them as Jesus does with compassion and love. You see it over and over again, don't you? So, so then what does it mean to receive them? Receiving the little ones means protecting them by constantly pointing them to the only one who is able to save them. That's what it means to receive them. It is welcoming them into the gate just as they are patiently teaching them how to live in the city and be citizens of the kingdom that Jesus is building. It is warning them about returning to the way they've come. And the scripture has a very imaginative way of describing this in the other text of scripture it refers to returning to your own vomit receiving is guarding them from that to want to return to the old ways guarding and even laying down your life to keep the sheep from falling into sin and falling away from Christ and so listen I just want to make sure we're on the same page with these texts I know it's tempting to to think about verses 7 through 9 specifically in terms of leading people into sexual sin or verses 3 to 5 leading into sexual sin or into drugs, alcohol, abuse, or some other one of these big sins. Now listen, no one should do that either. That's another text. We should not lead those into sexual sin, abuse, alcohol, or any of those things. But in the immediate context, the primary concern is self-righteousness that denies the need for Christ. Or unbelief that Jesus would be willing or able to save us. Either of these two are primarily in view here. And so to receive the little ones, in, in all honesty, it's, it's simply to, 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 to apply the sweet healing balm of the gospel to them. It's to constantly make an effort to feed them with the living bread of his Christ. It is to water them with the living water, pointing them to the great shepherd and overseer of their souls. It's to stand at the gate and warn all who are tempted to return to the world that there's no hope beyond the gate. And so it would be better to tie a millstone around your neck and be drowned in the sea uh, than to be a false shepherd who fails to discharge that responsibility. And so the application is clear. If indeed we're interpreting this correctly, which I believe we are. This is primarily for pastors and, and leaders. Primarily, but, but certainly not only. It's a warning for the apostles, the disciples, those who would like to be great among God's people. The warning is not to abuse the little ones who Christ has purchased with his own blood. Not just to tempt them to stumble. Not to sin against them, to use them and abuse them, but instead 
to faithfully discharge the duty and responsibility of a shepherd. But, but friends, it's not only for shepherds, but for pastors. It's not only for those who are in the official calling of that office in the church. There's an application here broadly for anyone who would lead in any way in God's family. So, if you didn't get enough last week, I'll offer one more specifically to our fathers. As shepherds of your home, as pastors of the family that the Lord has given you, this applies specifically to you in that role. Do not, do not fail to receive your children and point them to Christ. And do not fail to charge your family to trust Him. To call them to repentance daily. And so this is lesson one. That's the longest. Little ones are weak. Don't cause them to stumble. But remember the backdrop. The ones filing into the kingdom are not the wise, the great, the strong. It's the foolish and the weak, the despised, the rejected. Don't cause them to stumble. Assure them that Christ is able to save because he is God. Let's get some practical application how we can do this. What are some examples? Father, it starts with teaching children doctrine. This isn't a simply, well, I'll just, I'll just live this out in front of them. Sort of thing. Yes, you need to do that. You need to teach them about the Jesus who is able to save. You, you need to teach them about this Christ who promises to receive them. You teach them about this Christ who laid down his life for sinners. For the glory of God, so that they can have life in Him. And then, secondly, you need to be a source of encouragement in them. We have we have a rotten display of biblical manhood in our culture today. And here's what happens: is we live in a culture where the old-fashioned man has done the way with, right? So because we know we're not supposed to be a culture, we go completely the opposite way. We think that being a father means being emotionless. We, we think that's strength. We think what it means to be a father then is just to work hard all day at our job and come home spent and tired to be served. That's not what it means to be a father. Is that what Christ does with us? When you come to Christ, does he say, oh, so sorry. So sorry, I mean, I've been working all day. I've got a lot of issues. I've got a lot of things going on. I just, I need, I need some separation from you. No, he doesn't. Fathers, we have to understand who Christ is so we can understand what picture we're supposed to be displaying to our wives and our children. This is who Christ is. He's a source of encouragement and love and strength, and we have to hear this charge to mirror this in this way. So the application is clear. Look at your life. Fathers, church members, as a, as a start with the fathers. As a father, do you feel like in your fatherhood of your parents that, or of your children that you've led them to depend, to show them the beauty of Christ and let them encourage them that Christ is able to save them completely? Or have you caused them to stumble in failing to teach them about Christ and failing to live for Christ in their midst? Mothers, have you supported and strengthened and encouraged your husband this way? Of course, having not to teach your children as well, you are uh, his helper, his teammates. One with him. You're both parents, sure. In the midst of this, if you've been in constant encouragement to your husband to, to speak those words, to strengthen him in this way, to ask him, to beg him. And obviously, there's facets this entire thing doesn't cover, right? Church members, how have you looked upon the little children in our congregation? Have you been willing firsthand to serve and always are you anxious, excited about getting to the, the opportunity to shepherd and teach little ones about Christ? 
I can, t- I can tell you this, and I say this with love. When, when we have nursery workers and children's workers who are every week working and you have no help, help whatsoever, sometimes they feel like they have no help. <laughs> and there's a lack of desire from our congregation to serve in children's ministry. Do you think that's showing our kids to value Jesus, that he's able to save them? Or do you think that's causing them to stumble? We have such a servant church here. But but just look and self-reflect in your own life. In what ways am I encouraging these little ones to trust their life in Christ? Or are we just going to wait till next year and repeat what I say from the and feel like that's good enough. Well, well, Pastor Cody, I mean, I, you asked me to say amen, and I said amen. What did you say amen to? Do you even know? I were just to read it back to you and ask you what you just committed to before the Lord. Did you just dedicate to the Lord? Would you even know? This is what it means to love and shepherd our little ones. And you don't think this is important, friends? Look at the culture. Look at the lack of fathers around today. Look what it's driving students to, children to. Talk to Brother Corey. Talk to our children's workers. Talk to Miss Debbie or Charles. See what a lack of family structure does even to society. It's simple just to post on Facebook and say, man, school shootings shouldn't happen. These horrible things, they shouldn't happen. And that's what's wrong with our teenagers today. And they're coming to nothing to lead them to depend upon Christ. This is a charge that's given to the church. Do not cause these little ones to stumble. And let me, let me release this burden from your heart. God's grace is sufficient. Yes, we said verse 5 clearly, whoever sees one such child in my name receives me. But listen, if you are relying upon Christ and trusting in salvation, I've got a hope. He's going to lead you to receive others in this way. You will not be able to continue to follow Christ and not have a desire to minister to these little ones. It's an evidence and fruit of salvation. So if you are in Christ, your desire will be that. And friends, I'm just, I'm just asking us simply that we would take serious what we just vowed for. That we would all get serious about this. Knowing His grace is sufficient. I've rambled on enough. The charge is clear. What we need to start with is, is simple. It's repentance. I need to repent. As a father, as a, as a pastor, we all need to repent. And ask for the Lord's help that we lead these children not to stumble, but we lead them to the everlasting source of life, the living water, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, who is able and willing to save, who has completely done all the work necessary for salvation, that we lead them to see the beauty of Christ and the beauty of this work in his church. Let's stand together and pray. Father, you are our Father. God, you are a perfect Father. You're a good Father. Father, there are so many ways in my life that I fail as a Father. Whether it be my actions or words that I do not always lead my children to depend upon Christ. So, Father, I'm thankful that having a salvation does not rely upon me. And yet, Father, you, uh, you've commanded me as their Father to love them in such ways that I would teach them the gospel and I would live out the gospel of grace in front of them. Lord, I'm so thankful that I'm not alone in this, that this wonderful, gift of a church has been so incredibly gracious to our little ones um, who they love so much and they've led uh, 
to, 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 to see Christ, the beauty of Christ. And so I'm thankful for the gift the church has to come alongside parents who are needy, who are desperate, who want their kids to know Christ, but just don't know how. Father, I'm thankful that you equip us to be able to help in these ways, and I pray that we would. Father, I pray that as a, as a shepherd, Justin and I would continue to strive to lead our little ones, those in our children's ministry and those in our nursery to depend upon the Christ who is able to save. And Father, as I pray for the men of this church specifically, the men who aren't even here today, but are part of this church. Father, this, this wouldn't simply be some burden upon them that they feel the weight of and they know they can never accomplish. Um, but yet it would be something that drives them straight to the love of Christ. Because Christ is the source of our strength, even in shepherding our children. He's the source. So the more we are closely abiding and connected with the source, the more we will be able to, to teach our children about the God who's able to save and to demonstrate His love. Father, we want to see a generation that loves Jesus and serves Him. So help us be active in every way of service we can see to not cause little ones to stumble. That we would receive them by showing the beauty and grace of Jesus. Lord, we need your help. We desperately need your help. But we're so thankful that you're faithful to your church. And you will supply every need that we have to pursue godliness in this life. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. Father, I'm so thankful you're trustworthy. So Lord, as we turn our hearts to you, respond to your word, we know this is a serious and sobering text. This is not a feel-good text, but it ought to be. Because the gracious Prince Jesus is building his kingdom. And he's promised the gates of hell will not prevail against him. Help us depend upon the friends and celebrate you in Jesus' name.